by the look of it, you don't need my permission to sit down. <laughs> Some years ago, I was in ministry in southwestern Sydney, and uh, the minister at a neighbouring Church of Christ was a guy by the name of Ken Bond. Uh, Ken came from a rather famous Church of Christ family and uh, he was quite sporty himself and uh, unfortunately he still has a shocking head of white hair. He makes me jealous. But uh, at one stage I heard him talking about one of the things that had happened to him as a result of him being a part-time chaplain to the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra. Uh, every week he would travel from Campbelltown down to Canberra and spend some time there and then come home again. One of the junkets for him was that he was able to uh, go over to one of the Olympic Games and I'm not sure which one it was and it really doesn't matter uh, which games it was. But he was telling the story afterwards of uh, one of the biggest issues that they had to confront overseas was the loss of purpose amongst the athletes after their competition had been completed. For a number of them, for years uh, before the Games, they had been practising and getting their skills up to level. And then when these Games were over, many of the athletes had no idea what their new purpose was going to be. What was going to occupy their time and effort? So having been highly motivated and driven by the lead-up to the Games, they suddenly found themselves, we might say, at a loose end. What were they going to do? From trying to ar arrange high-level competitions, trying to improve their skill level, uh, at whatever discipline uh, they were working at, um, from having a very strict diet to making sure they had adequate rest and all of these other things suddenly lost their purpose and what were they going to do. Nowadays there's a whole lot more international competitions and uh, they move from one game to another to another. Uh, we were particularly interested in the uh, javelin throwing at the last, the women's javelin at the last um, Olympics because one of the Australian representatives was the daughter of Joyce's supervising teacher while we were in Canberra. And then uh, I was able to uh, perform her and Mike's wedding uh, down in Canberra just after our son's wedding. And uh, when they had finished the Olympic Games, they were off to another competition somewhere in Europe. I don't know just where it was. But it was from one competition to another to another. Athletes, in whatever their discipline might be, need a purpose for them to keep going with their gruelling lifestyle. And so we as Christians need motivation to keep us going in the way that God wants us to go. Our topic today is God's mission has a church. 
God's Mission Has a Church. And there's a subtitle of Ecclesiology. Lovely word, isn't it? Ecclesiology. When I first got the subject from Jeff, I thought he was uh, getting things back to front. I was thinking God's church has a mission. But the title was God's mission has a church. And so hopefully I can unpack that a little bit for you today as we move on. My guess is that most of you would be familiar with the word Ecclesiastes, the name of a book in the Old Testament. But I suspect quite a few of you would not be very familiar with ecclesiology. Now, a little bit technical for two paragraphs. Ecclesiology comes from two Greek words. Ecclesia is one word, logos is the other. Ecclesia is about an assembly or the church, the body of believers. And logos is the word, the Greek word, for word. So ecclesiology is words about the church. Now, to further complicate issues, sometimes it's spelt with a double K, sometimes it's with a double C, but you don't need to worry about that. And Joyce crossed it out in my original notes. Now, the word ecclesia itself comes from two Greek words, one being ek, which means out of, and the other one is klesia, which has a root meaning really of a call. So ecclesia means the called out ones. Ecclesiology, dealing with the church, has to do with stuff about those who have been called out. In a narrow sense, ecclesiology has been the study of church architecture and decoration. It was a topic I knew very little about until my final role as an army chaplain. And as part of that role, I was responsible for bringing online a new multi-million dollar multi-denominational chapel on the army base at Holsworthy in Sydney. Now I say multi-million dollar, it was somewhere between 10 and 15 million dollars. So it was quite a building and it was a great privilege for me to be involved in the opening and even though the chief of the army had his name spelt incorrectly and he wasn't very pleased about that, that wasn't my fault so I, I got off on that one. Now, I had nothing to do with the planning or the early stages of construction, but I was soon exposed to why reasons uh, prompted certain activities, certain things to be the way they were within this brand new church. While a lot of their reasoning wasn't terribly important for me, it was important for them and so by osmosis, I guess you might say, it became important to me. Why, in some places, does the preacher speak from this level amongst the people? Whereas in some churches, he will have a pulpit stuck up high on the wall. There's a rationale behind all of that, but we're not going to go into that this morning. 
Now, I think all of us would be familiar with the fact that the church is not a building, but it's the people. So in a sense, in the wider sense, ecclesiology has a whole lot to do with the wider things associated with the church. If you were to Google what is ecclesiology, it would come up with things like, what is the church? What is its purpose? What is the purpose of baptism? What's the purpose of Holy Communion? How should a church be governed? And all of these sorts of things. That second song that we sang today has a lot to say about what I want to convey to all of us today. God's desire is that the gulf that has been created between himself and mankind by Adam and Eve's sin in the garden should be bridged. Big gulf, God needed a bridge over it so that we could have close fellowship with him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 21 and 22 we read, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Adam's sin caused this big separation uh, between God and themselves. And in fact, they went and tried to hide from God. And it appeals to my sense of humour that God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, where are you? As if he didn't know where they were. But he still gave them the opportunity to own up. The death and resurrection of Jesus enabled that separation to be overcome. Adam and Eve had originally been able to walk in the garden and have close fellowship with God, but then that was spoiled and they hid themselves. But God had a plan. God had a mission. And that mission was to create a bridge so that we could come back into God's presence and we could call him in one place in the New Testament, it talks about calling God by the name that is equivalent to our daddy. You know, we talk about God being a father and he is great, etc., etc. But have you thought of yourself coming to God and God being your daddy and being able to sit on his knee and have a chat to him? It's a pretty close relationship. It's one that I really don't know because my dad died when I was seven so I don't have recollections of what that part of my life was like. One of the, sorry, one of the key biblical passages dealing with the start of the church after Jesus' death and resurrection is found in Acts chapter 2. We read about the events on the day of Pentecost. Towards the end of that story we read, With many other words he, and that is the Apostle Peter, 
warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, as we look at that passage in some detail, and unfortunately time constraints stopped me from doing all of that this morning, uh, we would find that there is something like 14 characteristics of the early church. So I'm just going to go through and quickly rattle them off. There was repentance, turning from their own way to God's way. There was baptism, identifying themselves as one of Jesus' followers. There was enthusiasm, they devoted themselves. Can you imagine that great excitement as they did what they believed Jesus wanted them to do? There was the apostles' teaching and uh, this apostles' teaching came to be known as the Didache, D-I-D-A-C-H-E, or the teaching of the 12, the 12 apostles. And remember that... Uh, uh, Judas had been replaced. And while originally it was an oral tradition, they just spoke it and people memorised it, uh, it was eventually written down. And if you want to Google it when you get home, you can Google the Didache and you can read it, see what they were learning about. And if it's familiar to you, that's because it's very similar to the New Testament, part of the New Testament. It's not a great massive uh, tome for you to sit down and read. I think it's only about six or eight pages, so it's not a great big thing, but it's something you can read easily. There was fellowship. There was communion. There was prayer. And I find it interesting to see how often the disciples, the followers of Jesus, were together and they prayed. And God did great things. You look at the great events in the book of Acts, nearly always they are preceded by the Christians being together in prayer. They were generous, like the people of the church here. They had things in common and they supported those who had need. They sold the things that they had and gave their money away they were popular now today the church is by and large not very popular but it was back in those days and the final of the 14 i don't know if anybody's been counting them um, but they were growing numerically 
we read that the Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved. Now, just for today, I want to put those characteristics aside as well as a whole lot of others that we could find reading through the New Testament. And I want to focus on just one idea that comes from a passage that we've been exposed to a few times lately. We will also, just for about the next 10 minutes, put aside the teaching about the church being the body of Christ. But let's remember the body is made up of different parts. So we should not be critical if somebody is a different part of the body from what we are. Now this passage, and hopefully you're becoming familiar with it, from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore God's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And the red did come out red, which is good. There are three concepts from these verses that I want to deal with fairly quickly. Firstly, and very, very briefly, the word reconcile or reconciliation means to change. Before Christian times, it was used in human relationships of enmity being changed into friendship or of enemies becoming friends again. In the New Testament, it's only used by the Apostle Paul in his writings, and it's always used of mankind being changed to become acceptable to God. Mankind being changed to become acceptable to God. Now, if we are to be reconciled to God the Father, what's going to be involved in that? I think primarily we have to acknowledge that we are not the people that God wants us to be. We have let God down, we've gone our own way and God wants us to turn back to him. We are to adopt his ways. And in the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, we are told that we are to seek the kingdom of God. We are not to seek our own kingdom, but we are to seek the kingdom of God. The second point I want us to think about is right at the end of the, that passage is the use of the word implore. It's the same word that's used in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 where Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is not a gentle request with the possibility of taking it or leaving it. 
There's no maybe if you don't have anything better to do with your time. It's a strong appeal. There's a lot of emotion involved in it. Now, if you happen to watch cricket and see Nathan Lyons bowling and he thinks he's got the batsman out, what does he do? Does he just turn around to the umpire and say, um, I think he's out. What do you think? No. Nah. He's down on one knee and he's vigorously imploring the umpire, get rid of him. Send him back to the pavilion. That's where he belongs. And so there's a great deal of uh, enthusiasm and motivation in his appeal. And that's the concept behind, behind imploring us to follow God, to be reconciled to him. The motivation for our response to the request to be reconciled should stem from what God has done for us already. It says in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy. So God has done so much, so our reasonable response is to acknowledge what God has done for us. Finally, out of this passage, I want to take a couple of minutes to think about being an ambassador. You ever thought of yourself as being an ambassador? What is an ambassador? Well, one definition has as part of it, uh, an ambassador is a diplomatic agent of the highest rank. That section of scripture says that we are God's ambassadors. We are of the highest rank. You might feel inadequate. I can feel inadequate. But God says we are ambassadors. So let's have a look and see what that might mean to us. Can you think of a time when you've been entrusted with conveying a very important message? When you were an ambassador delivering a message on somebody's behalf. Whenever I stand up in a situation like this, I am not overcome, but I find it, you know, an incredible privilege. It's not something to be taken lightly that I can be God's ambassador standing up in front of people trying to explain what God has to say. Another time when I have been a sort of ambassador was back in my army days when uh, chaplains were responsible for delivering notifications. Now, that was when somebody had been killed or when they were very seriously ill and you would have to go and notify the next of kin. It was not something that was treated lightly. And one of the good things about it was that we as chaplains had to train up others and they had to do the dirty work and we could just come along afterwards and be the nice people. Uh, and uh, it was really interesting a few, two or three weeks ago, I think. I'm not quite sure what prompted me to go through the wardrobe and lo and behold, there was my uniform for doing notifications. And I was very tempted to bring it along today, but you know what they say about women not being able to res uh, resist a man in uniform, so... It's still hanging up in the wardrobe. 
But when we were on call to do notifications, wherever we were in Sydney, we were supposed to be within about 30 minutes of Victoria Barracks at Paddington. So a number of times uh, we would go to our daughter's place over the other side of Sydney, but I always had to take my uniform with me. I had to be ready to go. And we never knew when that, was going, when that call was going to come. Uh, I never did work out how Joyce would get home, but that was her problem, not mine. And as I was thinking about that again this morning, a, a memory came back to me of, I think it was the first year we were in Wagga, and uh, Joyce's mum had come over and unfortunately had broken her hip and Joyce had flown back to Broken Hill with her and I was at home in Wagga by myself. Now I wasn't on call but unfortunately they couldn't wake up the chaplain who was on call. So I was the next one that they rang. 2.30 in the morning I had to go out to the army base at Wagga, Kapuka, had to wake up a guy and tell him that his brother had been killed on a motorbike accident. To make matters worse, the guy who was doing his training had given his motorbike to his brother about a fortnight ago, a fortnight previously, and then was killed on that Friday night. So half past two in the morning, I'm waking up this guy to tell him that his brother's been killed in a motorbike accident. So it's not something that notifications are taken lightly. Fortunately, I didn't have to do a lot of them, but when I did, there was an almost overwhelming sense of responsibility as to how we did that. So in the same way, there is, for probably a lot of us, an overwhelming feeling when we have the responsibility of sharing the story of what God has done for us in Jesus. What are some of the characteristics of an ambassador? A little bit more light-hearted now. An ambassador is a citizen of another place. Australia has ambassadors in various countries of the world. They are still citizens of Australia even though their work takes them overseas. These ambassadors have been commissioned by their country. Australia commissions these ambassadors to go to other countries and represent Australia in these places. If we are a, uh, an ambassador, we can count on the resources of Australia to support us in our work. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, we read that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. And at the end of chapter 4, the end of the letter, we read, my God, uh, my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ. It's sort of a side thing almost, but it's a great promise from God that he will give us all that we need. An ambassador remains in contact with his home country. 
He needs to be familiar with what is going on because he never knows when the country where he is based now might ask him for more information. The ambassador is responsible for delivering his message. There's no point in having an ambassador in a country if he doesn't say anything, if he doesn't represent his home country. He needs to be able uh, to, to speak to people in that country about what life is like in his home. And he needs to be familiar with the sending government's policy when things might change or when there's a change in government. How is that going to impact the country where he is? And so we are God's ambassadors. We are delivering a crucial message to those around us, a message of reconciliation to our Heavenly Father through the shed blood of his son Jesus. Now before Jesus left this earth physically, on two occasions he commissioned his followers to go into the world. In John chapter 20 and verse 21 we read these words of Jesus. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So here we see that in the same way that Jesus has been sent to this earth by God the Father, we are being commissioned by Jesus to tell others about God's great love for them. And then Matthew's Gospel records, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, there's a little verse in Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 2. And I've hardly ever heard anybody speak on it. But I think it's an incredibly important message. Paul was near the end of his life and he's writing to his young protege, Timothy. And he spells out in no uncertain terms the importance of Timothy passing on what he's heard from Paul to other faithful and reliable men who in turn will pass it on to others faithful and reliable men. This verse says, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be able or qualified to teach others. If we're familiar with the New Testament story, we know how Jesus called James and John from their lives of fishermen. And he did the same with Peter and Andrew. And he called Matthew from being a tax collector. Others were called by Jesus during his time of ministry. And so he had his band of 
called out ones. Those he had called from other tasks to come and follow us, uh, follow Jesus. Now, every one of us here in this building has been called out by God to take up the task of being his ambassadors. We may or may not take up that responsibility willingly. But that is what God wants of us, to share the good news of the reconciliation of how we can come from being enemies of God to how we can be his friends and sit on his lap, as it were, and call him Daddy. We don't have to go very far outside this building to be confronted by the anti-drink-driving message. RBT means you need a plan B. Anybody not heard of that? RBT means you need a plan B. And it may seem a bit strange to our way of thinking that God doesn't have a plan B for the continued sharing of the good news. He only has a plan A. And that's for Christians to rise to the challenge to tell others of the good news of God's love. I don't know where I first came across it, but it's one of those thoughts in my mind that comes back every so often. It's been said that the Christian church is only ever one generation from extinction. The Christian church is only ever one generation from extinction. And that's another way of saying that if ever there is a generation that doesn't pass on the good news, the church will die out. I personally don't think that will ever happen, but uh, that's what somebody had to say about it. God's mission does have a church. We are a part of that church, so we need to take up that mission. Let's pray. Father God, it's an incredible responsibility that you have placed on us of being your ambassadors to those around about us. I pray that you would help each one of us to be faithful in the way we live our lives, that we will take the opportunities that come our way and indeed sometimes we'll make the opportunities to share the good news of your love. Thank you for all of those who in our past have faithfully passed on the message of your love for us. May we in the same way faithfully pass that message on to others. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.